Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. goodness, I thought I knew quite a bit about prototyping and product iteration and getting you know, your, your device ready for go to market from a manufacturing standpoint. And I'll have to say, I learned a great deal on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, where I spoke with Greg Paulson from Zometry, all sorts of nuances and different things to consider and how to leverage technology and rapid prototyping methodologies at every step along the way. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight, Guru John Spear. Uh, folks, uh, something that's very important to think about if you're a medical device company that's making something tangible uh, is prototyping, manufacturing, and certainly for those, you know, maybe startups and earlier stage companies, there's a lot of different approaches and, and angles and strategies that you might engage in as you're on this quest to bring a new product to market. And, you know, the options and, and, and things to consider, I mean, they can be daunting at times. So good news is uh, we've got somebody on the podcast today might be able to shed some light on this topic. Uh, joining me is Greg Paulson. Greg is the Director of Application Engineering at Zometry. So, Greg, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thanks for having me, John. So, I think probably a good place to start might be to give the folks a little bit of an overview of Zometry, a little bit of your background. Uh, I don't want to steal too much of the thunder, though, for our conversation. But you know, maybe mm -hmm. the the thirty thousand foot view of who Zometry is and and how you might be able to help. Yeah, so Zometry was founded to make procuring custom manufactured parts very simple. Typically, if you are going to get a part made, you would send it out to the four or five people you know, wait for responses back. It often takes days and. Sometimes you get responses back that are all over the place price-wise. We offer a very simple experience where you upload a 3D CAD model and we accept various types of 3D CAD. It instantly prices. Uh, so the price is in seconds. And then you can configure it to um, one of the 11 different uh, manufacturing technologies we offer. And then configure it even fur further to specific material types, finishes, even things like uh, tight tolerances, inspection uh, requirements, et cetera. But we actually offer, we have seven types of 3D printing processes available, uh, as well as uh, manufacturing like CNC machining. So if you're doing like a machine peak or air light part or stainless steel part, we can do that. Um, sheet metal uh, fabrication, uh, we can do injection molding and urethane casting as well. So we have uh, different technologies for different levels and scales as you're, as you're doing product development. Uh, the other side of that is the fulfillment end. So the other problem with procurement sometimes is you hug your favorite vendor to death. And uh, that means you're giving them so much work that all of a sudden they're behind on everything. We actually have a distributed uh, elastic manufacturing capacity because we use a manufacturing partner network. So we are partnered with over 3,000 manufacturers. And we're able to pair what that job requires. So, you know, it's a CNC turned piece with these requirements. We're going to pair those with the shops that are best able to perform that. So 
for the manufacturers who have joined our network. We vet them through, we qualify them, and we're essentially getting them work on demand to pair them up uh, with the with the right requirements so we can hit the scope of the work and the lead time required. And we have this almost unlimited capacity to manufacture. All right. So, <clears throat> I, and I think it's probably important, and, you know, and that's a great overview. So thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's um, for the scope of our conversation today, uh, I think it's kind of important for people to start to think about prototyping, when to do it, what types of prototypes. Mm-hmm. Um, often asked, you know, questions like, hey, I'm getting ready to enter into verification or validation. Mm-hmm. What is, is acceptable from, from a product standpoint? What level does that need to be at? So I guess I'll kind of leave that a little open-ended and, and get your thoughts on that. Yeah, and actually, that's a, that is a very common question. So I run into this uh, very often with medical device manufacturers uh, because oftentimes, uh, I kind of joke, the, the engineering teams would be, our customers would be the engineering team. Uh, they would, they, um, they want to put some of that burden on, you know, uh, uh, the material choice, how to talk to the qualification of that on the manufacturer. But at the same time, as a manufacturer, you have to say, hey, hold a sec, you're engineering this, you know, I need to make sure that you had the requirements scoped out that so what I'm making can actually, you know, work with uh, your process. And there's, uh, with medical devices, you have that extra uh, burden when it comes to qualification. Like what is a material that I can use um, to move through a qualification stage? So beyond just conceptual prototyping, which is, you know, usually very quick, very iterative um, in its approach. And we have, you know, dozens and dozens of materials that are great for medical device uh, prototyping. And it starts to narrow down as soon as you say something like, I need a smooth surface finish, or I need something sterilizable, or uh, you have a, a need for clarity. Uh, for example, trans- translucency, transparency in a part, all of a sudden that whole scope, we have all these materials available and it just starts to narrow and narrow and narrow uh, down depending on those needs. So it's really important for us to know where you are in your phase and uh, what those requirements are needed to bring you to the next uh, to the next level there as you're moving up production. Um, a question I ask all, uh, very often is, what are the next six weeks look like for you? What are the next six, six months look like for you? And what are the next six years look like? Because those are typically very different manufacturing approaches. Yeah, and I, and I think, well, let me bring some of my own um, uh, granted maybe uh, history of experiences to the table, mm-hmm. but um, um, you know, I've been in this space for 20 years and I think just prototyping in general, there have been some evolutions there, um, certainly as far as the quality of you know, I'll say later stage prototypes. I, I, I still think there's a lot of value, and maybe we'll break this into different chunks, but I think there's a lot of value in, in sort of crude proof of concept prototypes. I was going to say analogy. Uh, I, I love my analogies. I've been doing this for over a decade, so I, I'm just all stories here. Uh, but I like to think, uh, I, I love photography. Um, I had a film camera, and with film, you go through your day, you load up the camera, and if you loaded it well, you got 26 shots. If you didn't, you got 24 shots. And uh, oftentimes during the day, you would think you really make this value judgment. Should I take a shot now or should I wait? Because uh, the perceived hassle of uh, reloading film was there. And uh, so you ended, up, um, you ended up taking limited shots and hopefully they came out well. Uh, where then you move to digital cameras and all of a sudden you're blasting out you know, hundreds of shots a day and you're just choosing like the 16 that you really like at the end of the day. And those are like you know, better quality photos overall. But you've, uh, because essentially the 
burden of taking a photograph is almost negligible. And with, with 3D printing, to your point, like going through, through crude concepts and doing almost a shotgun approach for different things like ergonomic factors and, and uh, moving to technologies like selective laser sensing, which is just super cheap and about you know, two, three business day lead time, all of a sudden you're taking these digital snapshots of a physical good. And it moves from that, that approach of like, when should I do it to why am I not doing this more often to get my product to move faster um, and be better as the end result? Yeah, and to, to to I guess to use your your uh, uh, photography, I don't know if it's an analogy or metaphor, but but bear with me if I whatever yeah. it is, analogy will say, um, <laughs> you know, then enter the digital camera, and you're like, oh, you know, I I have unlimited shots, you know, so there there's a pro con to that. So you know, prototyping uh, technologies have kind of advanced in a similar sort of fashion where there's there's. I don't want to say infinite opportunities or possibilities, but there's a lot more ways to leverage prototyping today than there was 10 years ago or 20 years ago when, when we started our careers. Yeah. And there's uh, there's technology. So a really common material that I see, so selective laser sensor nylon is kind of a go-to because it kind of gets you good enough. It usually has a little bit of a rougher, like almost a sugar cube surface finish to it. And the same with uh, uh, multi-jet fusion, which is also a newer technology, scales a little bit, little bit better in quantity, but Similar principle, makes nylon, which is uh, has a lot of checkboxes to it, uh, what it can do, uh, but surface finishes usually isn't one of the best checkboxes for it or requires us uh, post-treatment. Uh, so we, we see sometimes for fit checks and things that kind of look smooth or um, you know, smooth to the touch, it's going to be sterilography. And uh, we have 15 SLA materials available. Uh, to, some are translucent, some white gray, some have different properties like polycarbonate-like or polypropylene-like. Uh, but those may be chosen to have a more accurate, like visual and to the touch representation of of a product. So depending on what your demand is, it, it changes around. But SLA inherently brittles over time. So it's great for that that week or those weeks of testing. But it's not something that um, over you know a couple of years trial period or something is going to be my result. So with new technology, uh, there have been some good blends of my print for prototype can also be my print for the end use or at least trial stage design. So we just uh, introduced um, a really neat technology. Uh, it's carbon DLS, so it's called digital light synthesis. And I've seen a lot of interest, particularly in the medical device marketplace, because of this, uh, this print almost looks like an SLA print where it's, it has that smooth uh, surface finish to it. And you can even do things like apply textures, like apply a matte texture or something to make the surface finish more even. Uh, but the material itself uh, has some cool uh, chemistry to it. Uh, so it gets post-thermally cured and actually activates uh, inherent properties like urethane-like properties or epoxy-like properties. So the material grade is actually uh, not like SLA where it brittles over time. It actually has end-use results very similar to if you were doing a urethane cast, you would get very similar results out of the direct print. So I've seen some of these evolutions come along, which have been really interesting to blend that end-use functional with a you know uh, a smoother SLA like surface finish, which is typically what med device is looking for. Yeah, yeah, and and, and folks, um, just to remind you, I'm I'm talking mm -hmm. with Greg Paulson. He is the uh, director of application engineering for Zometry. You can learn a lot more about Zometry by going to their website. It's x o m e t r y dot com. Ton of information. 
it's it's clear that Greg is can get down and nerdy real quick when it comes to different <laughs> prototyping technologies. Yeah. But Greg, let's let's uh, yeah. let's pull us up a, maybe uh, into the stratosphere a little bit, and mm-hmm. and let's talk a little bit more pragmatic as to you know the things that can be helpful for those who are or maybe in that point where they're trying to figure out frequency and type. Uh, and not so much type as to do I do SLA versus CAS, but, but more, you know, what is the purpose of my prototype and mm-hmm. kind of frame the next part of our discussion. I, I remember years ago, I was looking at like, um, I was trying to, I'm, I'm a systems guy and I, I often dream in flowcharts and spreadsheets, but at the same time, uh, which I know is a, a weird thing, but uh, but I think there are others out there who might be listening who who can conceptualize the world in, in a similar sort of way. But I, I was building this this spreadsheet more as a way to to take the thoughts out of my brain and try to make sense of them. And I was trying to tie uh, design and development stages. Uh, you know, uh, where am I with respect to user needs, inputs, outputs, verification, validation? But but tie that to some. Uh, type of product level, um, and I, you know, so I was like, all right. So at the early stage, let's say while I'm trying to define user needs and design input requirements, prototyping could be a benefit there. So I'll pause and and let's talk a little bit about uh, provide some practical advice as to what does a prototype while you're defining user needs and inputs, what can prototyping do uh, to help you in that stage? Uh, are we talking just to, just to clarify? Are we talking like from a from a macro level, like you know, yeah. form function or like that? Perfect. Those type of stages. Yeah. Yeah. So right. Perfect. So that yeah. So this is this is a really interesting uh, question because it comes down to first off, like you know, what's what's your yeah, what is the purpose? What is the problem you're you're going to solve? Um, fit form function is a big one there. So am I? Um, and it's usually like kind of a choosing. Uh, um, choosing two of those sometimes, uh, depending on the technology you're looking for, but trying to see like what feature, what am I testing at this stage of my design? For example, you may not have a full design made, but you may have a a need for um, to understand better a a junction between like a strain leaf or connector, and uh, and sometimes it makes sense to just prototype that feature and really start isolating because you have this ability to kind of essentially you know yeah. kind of cut and trim. On your manufacturers and actually look at individual features and do high levels of iterations with those so you can essentially validate verify a a mechanical function or a another property um, and isolate it from the rest of the product which may be going through um, you know a different stage of development or you're waiting for your pc board to uh, to be finalized to actually make your your housing so you with uh, 3d printing in, in particular you could go in um, and you could use these technologies to help isolate, build, and test those features, not just the whole thing where it's like, hey, I, I really just want the strain relief, but I need this, you know, 12-inch part made. Uh, sometimes it's just cut off the end of it, test the, those features out. Um, the other thing sometimes is a true material validation. Like, will this material work for me? Yeah. Uh, before, we, is, before we dive yeah. to material, I want to... Yeah. Uh, so, so let's, let's mm-hmm. press pause on the material piece, but let's... Yeah. let's um, Let's talk a little bit about what you just described or what I heard you say. So, so in those early days, prototyping can help you better define your requirements, right? Uh, so, I may know that I have to have a certain, I have a certain requirement about you know shape, size, form, fit, function, something along those lines. But I may not know the the, the specificity of that. 
Uh, and a prototype can actually be beneficial to help me b- better understand that form fit function and help me better define a more tangible requirement, which will be useful for downstream uh, activities when, I, when I'm ready to verify and, and maybe validate something. So does that make sense? I mean, am I hearing you correctly? Absolutely. Especially when you, when you talk about some of these devices, like uh, you know, if it's a device in the OR or something that's a, that's a handheld, um, sometimes human factor really comes into play. And, uh, and I'm a huge fan of mixed media. In fact, I, I have access to you know, millions and millions of dollars of you know, upgrade equipment and all these technologies. Um, but very often in uh, my previous career was in product development. Uh, very often, my first things I went to was this kind of uh, balsa foam. Uh, material that I would first kind of put it, you know, stick it on, maybe stick it on with some clay or something onto the thing I'm looking to make. And I would, you know, reach my fingers around. And uh, so in this case, like I was building like a three button array and, um, and try to like peel it out, kind of form, form out some between this clay and I was using clay for the buttons and, uh, and the foam for the, the substrate and kind of create my, my net shape. And uh, I, once I got a kind of a shape down, I had actually go and then model it up. I was using SolidWorks and, and model it up, but I didn't quite have the buttons down. So I'd actually leave little cavities where then I'd just stuff clay in, uh, move, the, move that around again, get to my second iteration where I could play around and I was like, I like this button feel, and then start modeling that through. So uh, sometimes you, you want to do the quick and dirty, like the cardboard cutout, uh, and just, just get through some concepts and kind of give yourself like quick sanity check. And then once you do that, you can invest some time in the 3D design uh, stage and uh, start start running through some iterations. Um, something that's great with additive, and I, I do want to approach this, is the shotgun approach, which is uh, uh, a great way to test some human factor uh, feature. So if you uh, say, say, for example, you're doing a finger index on a, de- on a device where uh, you have a handle and you want to put like a little nub to kind of say like, this is going to be between my ring finger and my, my middle finger here. Uh, from grip and trying to figure out what that size is, what the shape is, where it's located. Because sometimes a difference of millimeters could actually lead to lead to fatigue. Uh, you can make multiple configurations, and because 3D printing doesn't require tooling, you can just order them. You can order them all at once and have like you know five six configurations be delivered to you in a couple of days, and literally just get your hands on, and get your uh, users hands on to get some experience feedback from that very very quickly. Yeah, um, and, and so the, you know, kind of what we're talking about here is, and I think sometimes um, people like this is this blows their mind. Like, and I think the software world has embraced this this uh, concept of agile product development or iterative product development. And I think a lot of times people think, oh, but I have a, a tangible handheld thing in. I really don't have this opportunity to be agile or iterative, but you know, just through some of the examples that you described, that that's really not the case. And in fact, I would encourage uh, folks who are listening: agile iterative methodology is your is is one of the keys to product development success. You don't have to be at you know at a, a very late stage in the overall development, and then prototype and find out, oh crap, this thing uh, doesn't work and we already cut steel and oh my goodness, we're going to have to go back to the, the to make some modifications to our tooling and that sort of thing. That's the wrong time to find out. So figure out how uh, and what type, you know, quick and dirty prototypes can be invaluable to verify certain design inputs. So figure out 
how you can be super flexible and how you can leverage prototyping uh, at every step along the way to verify. And it might you know, be to help you define something. It might be you know, legitimate design verification. It, sometimes a, a cardboard, a crude cardboard uh, cutout might be sufficient to, uh, as a verification activity. Other times, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe you need an SLA. Or other times, yeah, you might need uh, parts from, from uh, first shots or from you know, actual um, molded yep. components. So you know, there's strategy behind this, right? Absolutely. And it is so much cheaper to find a mistake with a couple hundred dollars of prototyping versus having to recut steel, like you said. My experience uh, with injection molding uh, in general has been the tool doesn't wear out, your rev does. <laughs> so yeah. like, if you're ever worried about like, how many shots this is going to do, very likely your revision is going to change before that, yeah. even a, an aluminum tool will wear out. And to your point, uh, I think one of the beautiful things about zometry is we're almost that pre-contract manufacturer uh, step because usually a contract manufacturer wants to bring you up into that you know, full-stage production. Um, we don't we don't inherently have minimum order quantities, and I do I do have several examples um, of customers. I can't talk about the project, but uh, customer projects where they needed to go through a trial validation with the material in which the parts were actually going to be made. But they also knew that very likely there may be some types of modification. But the only way them to use that material is it is an injection mold resin, and you have to make the injection mold tool. So we've done tools where you're really making 50 to 100 pieces. And honestly, they only need like 12, but they might as well get, you know, 100 because there's still, you know, a lot of... Same price. Usually you have to buy 55 pounds of material, you know, so it's already there. That is the cost of kind of bringing it through to the next stage gates as you're going through approvals and, you know, hopefully going through FDA and everything, uh, everything that standard. But yeah, if you have something like, um, uh, like a, you know, carbon fill, you know, exotic material, uh, sometimes the only way to make it is, you know, mold manufacturing. Um, if you can find billet, we could CNC machine. So I've, we've done CNC machining of peak. Uh, um, actually, we do that very often for for medical companies, and uh, and sometimes that is just something like a pre mold validation. But uh, sometimes the material is so exotic, you just have to use the final process. But hopefully, you use a cheaper way of making the tool or something that you know is going to be. Uh, it's not going to be there for hundreds of thousands of units. It's going to be there for you know a thousand to ten thousand. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you started to dive in a few moments ago about material selection. So um, I, I guess we can unpause. And, mm-hmm. and I guess I'm a little curious as to um, how can prototyping help me determine material selection? Yeah. So on the prototyping phase, you do have the ability to at least test some level of mechanical function, right? So you are you're able to see if ductility is necessary or like high, like parts, if you need parts that are highly stiff. So maybe your part needs to infill, like a glass fill to, uh, to it, for example. And you're able to make some, you know, relatively quick decisions on a mechanical need. And that's going to help lean towards one material or the other. So when you talk about molding and, uh, and traditional like uh, machining manufacturing, the, the sky's the limit, uh, really, when it comes to what materials are available. In 3D printing, uh, oftentimes, uh, it's what's been kind of qualified and passed through, especially for industrial additive like we use, is usually a, a more limited list. So a lot of times we we uh, use representative materials to, to pass through. Like a good example is when you're doing like a polypropylene. A lot of times with, well, I know in 3D printing, poly, printing polypropylene kind of stinks. It, it doesn't behave 
well for 3D printing processes because inherently 3D printing, you actually have to, you have to have it not puddle when it melts. <laughs> and uh, polypropylene, it flows super well for injection molding, which is great, but that also means it flows super well. So when you're melting it for 3D printing, uh, you don't get the resolution you want. So we use something like uh, laser center nylon sometimes as a feels like functions like substitute because the specific gravity of it is just about the same as polypropylene. The um, you can kind of twist, bend, and flex it at least for initials like your first like 20, 30 flexes, and it'll it'll behave like polypropylene. So a lot of times, my job is actually talking about the trade offs and the substitutes as you're working down uh, and trying to determine those, and then we can help we can help scale from there with understanding of like how many you need, what's your final end use process. Um, the other thing though with selection, especially when you're doing 3D printing, is 3D printing processes, some of them which have high material options may not actually have the best resolution or the best detail availability. Um, a good example, uh, if you know desktop 3D printers, a lot of those are those uh, fused filaments. So we call it fused deposition modeling, but it's that real spool of, uh, of a thermoplastic. It's melted and kind of zigzags back and forth to make your parts. It's very cool to get that material, uh, but sometimes if you have some stuff like font or a small rib, uh, it doesn't resolve that well because you have to essentially take a, it's almost like drawing with a crayon. You have to take this spool and kind of melt it and thread around those things. So I always joke with people like an O I can make, but if you have the letter I, especially a lowercase I with a dot, you can't, it's those dots, those features, and think of those as thin walls and columns, they're, they are often too thin to actually resolve that. So we may move to a process that can resolve better uh, to bring you up to like at least a fit, fit check, you know, at your PCB, at your mechanical assemblies. So sometimes it's it's a function of what material you need. Sometimes it's a function of uh, what uh, um, what will actually work to hit the detail needs of your part. All right. So, Greg, I'm going to give you a heads up. I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire questions here in a moment so be ready um, um folks i want to remind you again i'm talking with uh, greg paulson with zometry um zometry.com x-o-m-e-t-r-y.com it's very clear uh it should be obvious to you at this point greg knows his stuff on prototyping and and materials and, and different techniques and uh, we're going to dive into that a little bit here in the rapid fire but of course you're listening to the global medical device podcast uh, did you know that Greenlight Guru, we have a second podcast. Yep, that's right. It's called MedTech True Quality Stories. It's some of the most fun that I, I get to have uh, when I get to talk to uh, CEOs and executives and inventors and entrepreneurs of, of MedTech companies, understand their why, and also dive into some of their true quality stories, some of the obstacles and challenges that they faced, uh, whether it comes to fundraising or getting um, regulatory clearances or getting their their quality management system dialed in and ready to go. Uh, really great. I encourage you to check it out, share it with your friends and colleagues, wherever you're listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Simply search for MedTech True Quality Stories and you'll be able to find those episodes as well. All right. So, uh, Greg, I gave you some time to prepare. Um, let's do a little bit of rapid fire. Uh, so, first, uh, true or false, or you know, uh, I, I, or however the appropriate response is, um, I cannot use a, a rapid prototype for verification. Ooh, this is a this is a tough one. So, I'm actually going to say false 
uh, with okay. a caveat. All right. If um, there there are cases in which you can use a rapid prototype uh, material that can function and perform uh, for for verification. If you do, um, and again, this is you have to read the fine print on this. So I'm take this false with like a little bit of uh, let me let me research that a little bit more. Yeah, but, it was a loaded uh, question. If, if you, it's okay. Yeah, if, it's, if you have a drawing, like so, if you have a drawing, your end use product is actually going to be made out of you made out of this, you know, FDA cleared, you know, ABS or polycarbonate material. You can often use a um, you can use a substitute material for the at least a, some level of testing and verification to help bring you through that process. And that's really important when it comes to the cost of what you're doing because as I said, sometimes the rev are usually the rev expires before your tool expires. So that helps save you costs and helps you iterate even going through some of these testing in parallel. It's much more of an agile process than, for example, putting in that time to make a tool, get you know this, uh, a few parts made for this for this testing process. So just be mindful of where you are, like where you are, and some of the regulation policies. But I do know that. If your end use intended is something that can be approved, like it's already on like a, a list for approval, and it's going to go through a process like injection molding, uh, very often you can use uh, some level of prototyping uh, to at least bring your um, uh, your your medical device through a level of validation testing. Yeah. Now, I think it gets a little tricky if if um, your product is or the materials are patient contacting in some way. Yeah, um, there we go. Yeah, that, so that gets a little bit tricky. If it's in right? my mouth, if it's in my body, then uh, then sorry, you're going to have to do the real deal. Yeah, all right. absolutely. Uh, so there, there's. Uh, I keep on thinking because I I was just uh, talking to some medical device uh, um, uh, designers, and I keep on thinking about stuff. You know, in the uh, something that has human factors or something that's macro handheld, but absolutely human contact is a different story. There are um, materials out there that can be sterilized, that can be that uh, um, can pass cytotox, uh, irritability, cytotoxicity. Or, I already said cytotox, but like uh, sensitivity, uh, yeah. sensitization. Uh, so there are materials available, um, including actually the carbon process I mentioned has some really uh, unique ones for that uh, that you can use. Uh, so there are some. If you need to check those boxes, there are prototyping materials that can be used for that. But again, you you really have to know where where it is. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So um, next, uh, a loaded question <laughs> is: mm -hmm. uh, So I'm, you know, I I need I'm ready to go to market, or I'm I'm planning my go to market strategy. Uh, I've you know, let's say I've already got through verification and valid design verification, design validation, and you know I've I've got a submission that's pending with FDA or some other regulatory body. Uh, can I use rapid prototyping uh, for my production uh, for my first run production, or is that a, a no no? Um. So again, that's that's a little that's a little question. Depends on your market size. Um, something I do recommend is uh, thinking about a bridge tool versus going to a um, full cut steel mass production tool, depending on what your market size is and, and your initial market size is. Uh, because sometimes it does make sense to invest, you know, you know, it's it's sometimes like uh, you know seven to twenty thousand dollars, depending on the part geometry and the number of parts you have. But it may be worth doing that for a low volume production mold, something that could bring you up to your first like. Uh, you know, ten to fifty thousand units, especially because there always is a risk of something changing. 
so you can still, I mean, it's still going to melt that plastic. It's going to make that shape. Uh, you may not have a, you may not be able to do something like a A1 or A2, like highly polished finish on prototype molds, uh, but it could bring you to that, uh, not just the validation for FDA, but also the the customer verification and feedback cycle that you're going to get when you release that product to market without, you know, putting in, you know, 50 to 200 grand in your injection mold final tooling for production yeah. uh, and then needing to rework it. Yeah, I think that's a really, really great point. And, you know, and folks, um, it, it's clear that Greg knows his stuff on this. And so uh, I, I, my encouragement and advice to you is, is to reach out to, to Zometry if you have a, um, some sort of um, mechanical device in any way, shape, or form. They understand the continuum from concept to to go to market to manufacturing, and they have resources and expertise that can help you every step along the way. You know, it's, I think some conventional wisdom in this space um, sometimes um, leads us to making decisions that may not be uh, best suited for where we are as a company, uh, and, and they may be very expensive. Uh, choices that we make. And I'll, I'll give you two examples. One um, from my own... Ex- or both of these are from my own experience. One example, uh, I was working with uh, a company and it was a startup company and we were designing and developing you know, a brand new product. And, and of course, the need for prototyping was... Uh, was important uh, and it was an electromechanical device so you know the hardware the PCB the firmware all that was was being developed by one group and then we were doing uh, some mechanical design on uh, with another group and we had to of course put it all together <clears throat> um, and you know we did some work with rapid prototyping and uh, you know I, I would say <laughs> this is not necessarily a great experience but but I think it's typical of something that's unfortunately all too common. We jumped the gun very, very quickly uh, with uh, you know the limited feedback that we got on on the on the rapid prototypes, and we were trying to race, uh, so to speak, and we we went and cut steel. And um, let's just say those first shots didn't work so well. So Greg, I'm sure you never hear about that. Yeah, yeah, I've. Uh... Uh, so even my previous life, I was working in uh, product development, actually for defense aerospace. Uh, but uh, we probably the most expensive tool we ever made. Uh, there was uh, a piece that hinged on it, uh, and so we made the big piece first, and then we made the piece that hinged on it. And um, during a certain use, like we found that people who were closing it um, were not closing the way that we thought it would happen, and they were kind of using their palm. And unfortunately, the way the hinge worked, it would pinch. Like literally pinch your pinch your palm, and all of a sudden it became you know very costly tool modification for two pieces uh, of that of that assembly. Where I think if we went to um, either actually some of the rapid prototyping methods back then weren't existed weren't available, the ones that we had today we could probably do actually with a end use RP method. Uh, but that was a huge learning curve and a lesson and a very painful lesson learned uh, because we had a very professional tool made and the tool was great. It actually made a great part, but the part uh, use case was different than what we had uh, thought it would be. Yeah, my uh, to continue or to kind of finish my story, we, we cut steel, we get the first shots. It's just not... There was certain pieces that had to snap and fit together and not wobble. Uh, they did wobble. 
Uh, so that was a no-go. And I think we went through a round of, of trying to modify the tool. And mm-hmm. at this point, we, you know, these were, these were full molds. Uh, I think there were four of them. Easily $100,000 uh, $100, were invested yeah, in these gosh. tools. We were unsuccessful at modifying the tools. So um, there were, besides those first articles, there were never any parts that were ever shot on those tools. And in fact, uh, I could probably go to the warehouse where those tools are still probably sitting in storage. Mm-hmm. We, I, um, hopefully, they've at least got some scrap uh, metal uh, return on that, but, but they were never used for any sort of quantity of parts. Uh, instead, we went and cut new steel um, later. So it's, it's a painful lesson and it's an expensive lesson that, that I want you all listening to to try to avoid. Um, so, you know, that's why we've got Greg on this, this podcast and, and that's why Zometry is here because, you know, they literally are a, a manufacturing on demand resource that can help you with the progression of your products through the design and development process and scale up to full production. So definitely reach out to them to learn more. Greg, I, I want to thank you so much for taking some time to share your knowledge and, and wisdom on uh, manufacturing and prototyping with the, the listening audience today. So thank you so much. John, uh, very happy to talk. And I, I definitely know it's easier to send a part in space than it is to get it close to the human body. So I know that, you know, your customers, Green Light Guru, and, and the, the audience of this podcast understand some of these challenges and honestly, some of these ambiguous zones of when do I need to have something that's sterilizable or has to be the final end use material because it's not crystal clear and uh, we're happy to help wherever we can. Got it. So folks, um, check them out. And certainly, uh, hopefully by now, you know what Greenlight Guru is all about. Yes, we have an EQMS software platform designed specifically for the medical device industry by actual medical device professionals, people who have been there, done that many, many times before. Specifically, when it comes to design and development, uh, there's none better, frankly, uh, than than Greenlight Guru to help you manage and maintain your design controls, your design history file, incorporating risk throughout that entire process, having documented design reviews and workflows built into the purpose-built solution, and doing so in a way that can be as agile and iterative as your heart desires. So if you'd like to learn more about Greenlight Guru, our EQS software platform, and the design control risk management workflows and how they can help you get your product to market just a little bit faster, then I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. And once again, thank you all for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. If this is your first time, thank you. There are literally over 100 other episodes that uh, are there for you to consume and enjoy to your heart's content. So. As always, I uh, appreciate you being faithful listeners and, and continue to spread the word about what we're doing with the Global Medical Device Podcast. Check out MedTech True Quality Stories. Go to the Greenlight Guru site, read the articles and the blogs and participate in our webinars. We have so much information that is there free for your consumption, whether you're a Greenlight customer or not. So enjoy all of that. And uh, thank you as always. Uh, this is the founder host, VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.